This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to a new episode of the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Sally Sharif, and today we are discussing a book by Francie Carranza Franco titled Demobilization and Reintegration in Colombia, Building State and Citizenship. The book was published in English in 2019 by Rutledge and in Spanish in 2020 by Centro de Investigación y Educación Popular with the title Arme y Desarme en Colombia, Creación de Ciudadanía, Construcción de Estado y Procesos de DDR. Francie, thank you for being with us today. Thank you, Sally, for inviting me to this talk. And hello, everybody listening today. Full disclosure, we know each other from before, from conferences, but um, can you tell our listeners a little about yourself, uh, what you do, and how you acquired an interest uh, in the topic of this book? Well, I'm a Colombian researcher. I have a degree in psychology, but all my career I worked in research in topics related to conflict, armed groups, peace and governance. And I have worked in different universities in the uh, Javeriana University, Los Andes and National University, as well as other institutions like NGOs and with the government, the local and national government. Um, I'm kind of half psychologist and half political scientist. Um, I started my research when I was a PhD student in development studies at SOAS, uh, that's the University of London. Uh, And I was studying at the time of the transition between Uribe's government and Santos' government. That was 2010-2011. And Uribe's government pursued a big program of demobilization, including uh, both paramilitary groups, more or less 38 paramilitary groups, and uh, other guerrilla deserters. So um, that was a big process. At that at the time, more or less uh, fifty two thousand uh, combatants, ex combatants, that went through that process, and I was interested in analyzing that. Um, and then Santos, President Santos, started conversations with the FARC guerrilla. Uh, those conversations, as as you know, ended in a peace agreement. So the guerrilla demobilized and made the transition into a political party in in 2016. So the peace and the DDR and all all those concepts uh, were very important and very controversial at the time. And I was very interested in all that. Uh, So in the book, I compared uh, those two governments and I tried to understand all the complexities of the peace processes, explaining the state building and the governance issues related to transition from war to peace, but also focusing in the DDR and the experiences lived by the ex-combatants. Right. It's great that um, you have experienced uh, both of these uh, programs. You have research experience with both, and uh, that is really great. So, Francie, I really liked your book. 
especially because it came out uh, at a time when I was writing my PhD dissertation on DDR programs and especially the program in Colombia. So the book helped me a lot in my uh, research. I also liked that the book goes beyond DDR and engages with theories of state building and state society relations. Uh, Before we start, some of our listeners might not be clear on what DDR exactly is, and we talk as if um, it is a very uh, clear-cut concept. So tell us about DDR programs in general um, and their purpose when they started where we are in the DDR world right now? Well, DDR means the Mobilization, Disarmament, and Reintegration Programs. Uh, This is an expression coined by practitioners on post-conflict reconstruction and refers to programs or policies on peace building, especially those implemented by multilateral organizations such as the United Nations of the World Bank or the World Bank. However, of course, countries and societies could also develop their own post-conflict programs or processes. And we kind of include all those um, autonomous processes in this terminology of DDR. I think also just DDR uh, is a new terminology to talk about very old uh, processes, which are simply the end of wars. Uh, when two or more armies or factions sign a peace agreement or sign amnesty or decide to stop the fights, while the governments, the leaders and the armies have to decide what to do with all the soldiers, all those that survived, um, how to disarm them. Um, They have to uh, uh, question, raise these questions of... uh, uh, are they going? Uh, are they going to join a new national army? Uh, do we put them in jail? Um, are they gonna behave like uh, violent people within the society? Of where do we put them? Um, so, and it doesn't matter if we are talking about regular armies or illegal armies, like let's say paramilitary forces of of, of guerrilla. The question is always there. And, and this process is twofold. Uh, on the one hand, um, the decision of what, ha- of what happens to the armed groups and to the soldiers is a key topic during the peace negotiations. So the world leaders in the table, um, they have to decide what to do with all the surplus of troops. And they could also use their army power and the number of soldiers uh, under the command as a leverage, as a tool during the negotiations. Um, otherwise, they won't be there negotiating. They, they were not dead. They were not defeated. So they have to uh, bear in mind the amount of soldiers that are there all armed and, and, and decide what to do with them. So they could instrumentalize the troops to obtain some um, political gains in the negotiating table. But also, these leaders could have a legitimate concern for the soldiers. And that's also a point uh, that needs to be taken into account. Sometimes, of course, these soldiers have grievances, and those grievances made them take the arms in the first place. So all these discussions are in the negotiating table. Um, on the other hand, the soldiers go through a process, they need to go through a process of mental and social change to become civilians. 
And in that sense, also, the society in general needs to go throughout the process to, to um, learn uh, how to rebuild and how to reconstruct uh, the civilian structures and keep the peace. Um, in many cases, violence does not disappear completely, but at least the war comes to an end. And that produces deep changes uh, within the, the societies. So all that uh, is, uh, all, all those changes, let's say, all those transitions um, are studied by the, by the scholars in, in DDR. Uh, thank you for that explanation, and thank you for laying out how DDR is perceived differently by different sides of uh, conflict, what the state sees as DDR, or the purpose of DDR for the state is very different from individual uh, combatants. Um, um, and, uh, of course, DDR is very important. I think in English, it, is, it stands for disarmament, demobilization, reintegration, and uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, discussion on what should come first. Should uh, disarmament come first, or should demobilization come first? Uh, but just the acronym, uh, like disarmament, comes first. Um, and as you, but, uh, but, but yes. some, sorry, also, uh, the R is very difficult. So you could talk about reintegration programs, but you could have uh, also, uh, like in Colombia, you may have also reincorporation programs because the FARC didn't want to use the reintegration part of the DDR acronym because they thought it was a part of Uribe's strategy to defeat them. So it's just a set of concepts that are, all those three concepts are in that uh, DDR acronym. And uh, I think there is a, still a lot of discussion about what they mean and how they should be implemented anyway when we have a post-conflict society. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. I think in some programs they have a DDRRR program. It's disarmament, demobilization, return, reinsertion, reincorporation, and reintegration and all of that. But uh, you're absolutely right that this acronym just stands for a kind of program that countries uh, undergo uh, in transitions from war to peace. Um, and, and, and DDR programs are very important in this sense. Um, uh, I think they are so important that I built a data set of the universe of DDR programs during my PhD with the first one beginning in uh, 1980. Uh, and I show the synergies between DDR and peace agreement implementation, which is why I really like your book, because uh, it gets into these synergies, how a country emerges from war, uh, not just by putting these combatants aside, but bringing them into society. Great. Now, as you said, Colombia has had a long history of demobilizing and reintegrating or reincorporate, reincorporating members of non-state armed groups. Uh, this goes to even before the UN picked up uh, this terminology, uh, so in the 50s and the 60s. What are the gaps in the literature that made you write a book about DDR in Colombia? What is it that other people have not captured before that your uh, book um, uh, sort of lays out? Well, as I say, the, there is still uh, much discussion about all these DDR policies and programs, but I, I could focus probably in, in two that are most uh, more important for me. Um, uh, one of the main gaps uh, that many Colombian and other international researchers have addressed is why the violence continues in the country, in Colombia, despite so many peace processes. And uh, that's an umbrella question to address other issues on state building and governance. 
And what I found is that these uh, peace processes were actually successful. Uh, and I say successful because the guerrillas or the paramilitary groups have disarmed and dismantled and reintegrated. And most of the soldiers of these armies do not retake arms. They, they remain as a civilians. They go back to the society as civilians. And we're talking about um, between 80 and 90 percent of, of the ex-combatants actually um, remain um, in the reintegration processes. Um, but then the violence starts again. And... Um, and that's because as we as a society, we don't we haven't solved the problems in, in terms of economic and social and political problems that feed the conflict. Um, and and the soldiers, which are or the, ex -com the, the ex combatants and ex combatants, uh, which are always blamed for the failure of peace. Uh, they are seen as the us usual suspects. No, They are they are always blamed uh, because they um of course, there, is, there are dissidences and people who rearm, but mostly they are not the main problem. Um, rather, as a country, we keep creating the conditions for conflict and the conditions for the creation of armed groups that recruit new soldiers, meaning children. So we have a huge problem of child recruitment. Uh, and these children have no options other than becoming guerrillas or paramilitaries or in the urban areas become part of gangs or of part of criminal groups. Um, as a psychologist, I had studied um, all the social base uh, and the recruitment processes of far guerrillas and the paramilitary groups. And I, what I find is just... The, the peasants, the peasantry and, and, and other rural and urban marginalized populations that basically are, are regulated by, the, by these groups and becoming a soldier or becoming a part of these illegal groups is actually a form of social mobility, sadly. No? There is no education, there is no other job opportunities. So I was um, very, uh, I knew about the recruitment processes uh, so I was also very interested in, in the opposite process, which is the transforming soldiers into civilians. Therefore, uh, when the demobilization of paramilitary groups and uh, guerrilla deserters started during Uribe's government, I was very uh, interested in understanding all this. Um, um, also... I, I found that the literature focused on the economic issues. Um, and as a psychologist, I also had a problem with that. Uh, I, I, didn't, I didn't think that that was the, the ultimate explanation for the recruitment uh, in, in, into all these groups. Um, and actually, the economic issues were the less important aspects of reintegration. So, yeah, those two areas were the most important for me, and that's why I started to um, researching on this, trying to understand more uh, how the recruitment process uh, um, into all these groups meant other things for the soldiers, and also how the transform uh, the, all the, all the the opposite process of transforming soldiers into civilians uh, could be implemented in in, in in Colombia at that time. 
Great. I really appreciate the insider knowledge that you have into um, all of these uh, DDR programs that Columbia has been trying to um, sort of uh, uh, implement in the past uh, many decades. So before we go into the book, but into the substantive questions in the book, I just want you to quickly tell us um, about the interviews that you did. I'm, I'm really impressed by the number of interviews you did uh, with a variety of stakeholders. Just quickly uh, tell us what method you use for gathering the material for this book and uh, give us an idea of the time frame. When did you start conducting interviews? Uh, when, did you, when did you end? Uh, just give us quickly um, uh, sort of a sketch of the, uh, the methodology. Uh... Well, doing the fieldwork was the most enjoyable part of, of doing my research. It is always like that. Um, I, I use mainly interviews and focus groups and observation for all my um, researchers, for my research. I did my fieldwork uh, in Colombia for my PhD thesis uh, over nine months in 2011 and 2012. I made interviews and focus groups with uh, more or less 150 ex-combatants, uh, both from paramilitary groups and guerrilla uh, deserters, um, and that included six ex-combatants that were leaders of grassroots organizations. All of them were taking part in the reintegration program that was created do- during as administrations. So I visited about nine cities that had that program. Um, and I was very impressed with all the, um, the work that the, at, at that time they were called the reintegrators. <laughs> that was the public servants doing all the, helping the ex-combatants in going through all this process of reintegrating. And, and they were fantastic. They, they had the most amazing stories to tell. I interviewed them also about 50, 52 contractors uh, working uh, for the Alta Consejería para la Reintegración at the time. That was the institution that was reintegrating all these people uh, in different areas of the country. That in, in English, that will be the high consular for the reintegration. Also, people working for the um, local programs in Bogota and Medellin that were created by the major offices, um, the Peace and Reconciliation Program in Medellin and the program for uh, the mobilization of ex-combatants in Bogota, as well as other contractors from international organizations and experts um, in the Colombian conflict and the peace process. And then for the book, I made more, more interviews and field work with uh, the FARC guerrillas. And I had uh, uh, the very unique opportunity of uh, witness the negotiation of, of, of be um, uh, living the negotiation day by day uh, with the news and you know what, what with the all the um, all the information here in in the country that was part of, of, of the society at the time. So I followed that uh, in real time, uh, both as a researcher, as an activist, as well as as, as a Colombian as well. And I ha- also participated in the tenth congress of the Far Guerrilla. And that was an amazing experience. That was a rather public event that was massive. It was organized by the FARC leadership in the middle of, of, of their um, former stronghold in the middle of the Llanos Orientales in Colombia, Yari, uh, which one of 
one of the main uh, camp uh, camp uh, military camps where that was there and it was open for to more than 3000 people between soldiers and world journalists and researchers and we were we were all there and it was an amazing experience i i learned a lot from that um and um i also took part in in the many many other meetings and other massive events and open events that the FARC and the government and uh, other institutions made uh, in regard to the mobilization and to reintegration of reincorporation of these ex-combatants. So I kept doing interviews and observations at different moments um, of, of the process. So um, yeah, that's how I got it. All all that later on became part of the of, of the book. I, I analyzed that um, for each chapter. And, and, the, and that's how I wrote the book. Great, um, uh, that's impressive. I would I would give anything to have been in Jadi in the FARC tent conference in 2016. That's 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 great. All right, so let's uh, start with the more substantive questions about the book. Um, the book consists of separate chapters for uh, the three types of reintegration, if such hard boundaries can be put, uh, economic, social, and political reintegration of ex-combatants. And I have separate questions for, uh, for each um, chapter. Um, so starting with the chapter on social reintegration, which is, by the way, my favorite chapter, um, you mentioned the term social fabric. Uh, in Spanish, el tejido social. And you say that the agency responsible for demobilization and reintegration in Colombia, um, the ARN that worked with the FARC ex-combatants, they played a principal role in mending the social fabric. Uh, this is on page 208 of the Spanish version. Now, this is very interesting to me, Francie. We are talking about the perpetrators of violence during conflict, the rebels helping restructure civilian communities' social fabric. So I have two questions. Number one, what do you understand by the term social fabric? Um, And second, how does war affect the social fabric of societies, uh, and especially of Colombia? Well, for me, social fabric is the interaction uh, between people and how uh, you create communities and how you create com- uh, society through uh, that interaction. Um, and uh, basically war, what, what war does is to break all those interactions and probably to create new ones. Um, and uh, one of my the main points of my book is precisely to challenge the idea that the ex-combatants are the security problem in the aftermath of, of war, and they are the, the problem, the main problem uh, for societies. What I found is that precisely all these soldiers are part of uh, communities, very marginalized communities. Actually, I could tell you an uh, and story here. When I was studying at the university, I was very young. Um, I had an ex- a personal experience of six months living in the area of La Macarena, which is basically right next to El Yari. E, and of course, that was um, a main um, FARC uh, area, controlled area by, by the FARC. 
um, or, or, or rather was mo more a disputed area between the FARC and the government, but the government was not there. No, it was uh, it is more it was more the FARC who made the presence and who FARC performed the duties as a state. No, the function as a state was 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 the FARC. Uh, that was 1997. That was a long time ago. And then I was a school teacher in a rural school, and many of my students, and, and they were very, you know, children. Uh, they were children living in, in that area, and I was with them for six months or so. Later on, they became part of the guerrillas. And um, um, especially when the FARC came to take control, complete control of the area during the distension zone that was the failed peace process during the Pastrana administration. Andres Pastrana um, was president between 1998 and 2002, and he, he launched a very disastrous peace process. Um, uh, in, in, in that process, he actually gave the guerrilla, the far guerrilla, all that area of the Yari and San Vicente del Caguan and La Macarena. And the guerrilla came and they, they were not interested in making peace. So they, they used that opportunity, sadly, to, to become more um, strong in terms of uh, military uh, activities um, and guerrilla activities. Um, and anyway, I lived with those kids and I knew them and I knew the reasons they had to enlist uh, as guerrillas because they, they did talk to me about how they, how they expected to be part of a, a, a bigger um, a, a, a bigger adventure for them um, in terms of uh, being part of this big ar army that they actually uh, thought that was... Uh, um, very um, powerful and it was like an adventure for them no? like some kids have dreams in becoming doctors or engineers or or whatever and they 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 thought that the only way of social mobility for them was becoming a guerrilla soldier so i knew them uh by heart and i, I you know so that was very a very emotional um I had a very emotional relationship with them, of course. I was their teacher. Um, so, um, based on my personal experiences and my research, I can say that the soldiers and this, all these ex-combatants, especially those part of the legal groups, are rather pushed by their circumstances to join the war, to become soldiers. Therefore, uh, we have to understand the combatants as part of the society in conflict, not simply as completely isolated individuals that have no relationship with a society. Um, in political science and economy and the mainstream, all these mainstream stream theories, um, there is a very common idea that the soldiers are greed and they are evil people, terrorists, and they come to exercise violence just because, with, for no reason. Um, while on the contrary, other theories have argued uh, the importance of analyzing grievances and the structure of society as a, as a main driver uh, of the combatants' uh, behavior. I'm not saying that people are simply the result of their circumstances, um, 
but by definition, a soldier's capacity on individual agency is rather low. That's actually the main aim of military training. So the capacity, their capacity of exercising violence depends on bigger structures uh, that go beyond individual decisions. Besides that, um, all um, uh, the reintegration of ex-combatants also means it has a big uh, meaning of integrating some marginalized communities, not individuals, communities to the state. So the reintegration, uh, the FARC said actually that the reintegration is not of them into the society, but of the state on the communities. Um, and make them visible, make these societies visible um, to the bigger state uh, and get them, get people, people living in these areas, simply the status as citizens, because in many cases they don't have that status. They are not recognized by the state. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Right, and I, I really liked uh, that uh, part of the chapter that uh, uh, talks about uh, the bringing ex-combatants into this uh, social fabric, into this tejido social uh, that has been broken by the war. Um, right. So moving on, um, the book's chapter on political reintegration talks about the Colombian state's attempt at creating good citizens from ex-combatants through reincorporation or reintegration programs. Uh, you cite one of your interviews with a facilitator of these programs that you said were called reintegrators. Uh, uh, and this person says, when ex-combatants come here, they first threaten and speak with aggressive language, but then after a few months, they change their attitudes and say things like, I'm going to call the hotline and complain about this issue. Um, this is on page 268 of the Spanish version. Can you elaborate on this deliberate citizen-making process by the Colombian state uh, through the DDR program? Well, I think that's uh, one of the main contributions of the Colombian DDR um, to, to the world, is that the psychological part and the psychosocial reintegration was the main element that organized all the other elements of reintegration, the economic and political and, and the social um, elements of, of this uh, DDR. Uh, that in uh, mainstream theory, they actually are kind of, they are there, all these three areas, economic, um, political and social reintegration, but they don't interact to each other. Here, the psychological um, area or, or, or the, the, reintegra the reintegrators, or all, all these public servants doing that, helping in that process, mostly were psychologists. So the psychological part was very important uh, in, 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 in how to organize all those other activities. Um, and there was a lot of emphasis in transforming identities and behaviors in order to achieve other economic and political reintegration aims. 
In other words, um, the process focused in making the ex-combatants citizens. Uh, meaning uh, that meaning to uh, that they had to acquire to develop um, new behaviors in terms of citizen rights, but also citizen duties, uh, and that's not little toward communities that have been marginalized, and um, and 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 they are in, in poverty. And actually, the creation of the guerrillas was due to security problems that. Uh, threatened these communities um, uh, in their same existence. They were attacked by the government in many cases, or what they were attacked by other uh, armed groups. Um, but at the same time, this new status as citizens makes the individuals behave as such, uh, uh, to develop new new behaviors, meaning not uh, using violence, um, being able to use some civilians institutions to raise to raise the grievances instead of uh, just using arms. Um, so all that is about creating relationships between the government and the, um, the the people, the people in the in the countryside, the, the peasant communities, the Afro-Colombian communities, the indigenous communities. So uh, to conclude, political reintegration goes beyond the creation of a political party, uh, and that's something that DDR doesn't take into account in many cases. Um, and actually, this political reintegration emphasizes the importance of acquiring like certain political rights and citizen behaviors, and people only can build that uh, in a process of interaction with a certain state and interaction with the political institutions that in many cases we don't have in, in the countryside, we don't have in the rural areas isolate, isolated from, from, the big, are, uh, big, um, from the big cities. Um, in the lack, if we have lack of political institutions, that people will have to relate, will have to have this relationship, this political relationship with other stakeholders, and in this case are illegal armed groups, or any group, or even criminal groups, or, um, or other groups that dominate the society and control their territory. Thank you. Those are, those, you know, what you say is very insightful. And if I were a grad student, I would just take notes and <laughs> write an entire dissertation on each word that comes out of your mouth. But um, I have another question about um, th this idea of citizen making and what you mentioned as changing citizen behavior and 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 making ex-combatants understand their duties towards society. Uh, so. Jeremy McMullen, who I think is a very influential thinker in the DDR world, says, um, quote, uh, processes of reintegration are not designed simply to assist ex-combatant beneficiaries, but to engineer them socially, end of quote. To what extent do you think this citizen-making process is paternalizing? Because a lot of us uh, sitting in the global north um, might think of this process of creating behaviors as paternalizing. Do you think this social engineering is necessary for ex-combatants to reintegrate into civilian society? Or do you think this is a continuation of the state's narrative that these combatants are outcast terrorists and they need to be reformed in order to fit into civilian societies? Well, um, I think by isolating the ex-combatants um, or thinking them as individuals, well, the social problems are not going to be solved. 
Um, for instance, there is no point in giving them money or giving them all these uh, uh, projects, uh, productive projects to create their own businesses if the economy is not working well. Uh, or you have a completely destroyed economy, or there is no point in trying to reintegrate them in a society uh, if, if the society keeps seeing them as outcasts, like, like uh, as people that does not deserve um, any kind of uh, treatment or relationship or, or, or does not deserve to be a citizen of, of that state. So that social engineering is important, but, but definitely is, is not going to be achieved by the intervention of the international community or by the, by, by the implementation of, of, of these DDR programs. Um, uh, actually, I think the problem is that the DDR programs and the aid that comes from those programs, that mainly comes from the international community, uh, neglects the citizen part of the equation in the reintegration. Um, and the, as I say, there is a lot of support for the business plans and other economic help, uh, but there is very little interest, uh, uh, like very um, uh, very few activities and, and not, not much focus in the social reintegration and in the creation of relationships between the communities and the ex-combatants. Um, or, or, or between the, let's say, the mid-class society in the cities and the communities, um, the poor communities in the rural areas where the, these combatants came from. Um, and there is no interest at all uh, from the DDR um, programs and the international community in, in regard to political reintegration, as, as I mentioned before. Um, moreover, there is a complete mistake to assume that the DDR programs are non-political or apolitical or anti-political uh, uh, because politics is the core point of any of these programs. Uh, because at the end, a good reintegration process should have the aim of creating a non-violent relationship between the ex-combatants and the state. Um, or, or between the ex-combatants and uh, the, the, the society. Uh, so I, need, I think we need to put back this idea of politics in the DDR programs, uh, but at the same time, uh, uh, you can, it's difficult to, be, uh, uh, to create policies that are very paternalist, paternalizing in that sense. Um, because at the end, it's a normal relationship that you should, you should create, you know, with, with the state should create with their citizens. So the DDR programs could help somehow uh, in this process, but definitely um, uh, we need to uh, strengthen the, the, the state and strengthen these, these relationships. Um, and, and sometimes just DDR programs are not able to do so. It goes beyond them. I believe. All right, great. So now let's turn to economic reintegration. Um, you mentioned in that chapter a variety of economic support schemes that the government provided for FARC ex-combatants. But in your interviews, many ex-combatants told you that they were offered a lot of money to join criminal groups instead. Uh, you write, quote, 
neither the ACR, the reintegration agency, nor the government is capable of competing with the economic incentives offered by illegal armed groups. Yet, they also understand that these incentives have lost their value to the demobilized and that there are other elements that play a more crucial role, be it their families or the sense of freedom from military life. End of quote. This is on page 138 of the English version. Uh, Francie, we know that about 3,000 ex-combatants from this DDR program with the FARC have rearmed. Um, to what extent do you think economic factors mattered for this um, somehow high rate of defection uh, from the peace process? Well, I, I think we need to clarify those numbers um, here. In fact, of those who actually left the weapons and went through the process of reintegration, only about um, uh, more than 90% uh, I, uh, are, um, were success, successfully reintegrated. Um, those 3,000, uh, you may have people there that rearmed, that went through the process and went back to the arms. Um, but mainly we have dissident structures that from the beginning, they didn't agree with the peace process. Uh, and, and really a minority, a very, um, a very few ex-combatants, mainly mid, um, mid-ranking ex-combatants and ex-commanders had rearmed. Um, analyzing the Colombian peace process in history, you know, well, the peace processes actually, um, in history, the rearming of armed groups is mainly a phenomenon of um, small groups, a small group of people, very few people, uh, that are high to mid-level commanders, that they defect from the process and they start recruiting again fresh soldiers. That's why I'm saying that this problem of child recruitment is huge and no one is really talking about that. Wars in general are made mainly by the youth. Uh, it's not the old that stay there uh, forever. There is a very high rate of death and injuries in, in wars. So you need all the time, let's say, fresh people to do that. So these groups have a huge uh, apparatus for recruiting uh, children, and we have to take care of that. We should take care of that. Um, and um, in the case of the FARC's commanders who went back to arms and rearmed again, they were the most radical in their political thinking. And the, economic, and the economy and the rents from illegal activities are rather instrumental from them, um, just to keep going with their political ideas, but definitely is not their main reason to rearm. Um, in the case of paramilitary groups, some commanders and even those benefiting from huge rents uh, from coming from illegal businesses, they also decided to demobilize. And for them was more important the political status rather than economic um, benefits. So we have to be more careful there in, in analyzing how all these um, rearming and these dissidences are, are, are operating and what's the, their dynamics. Uh, because definitely what you see in analyzing DDRs is that mostly, most of the people, most of the uh, combatants that uh, go through the process, they stay in legality and they don't want to go back to war. 
and money for them is not worth it any longer for that because they experienced the risk and horrors and um, and, and war itself uh, and it was a, a very sad experience to say uh, to for them, no, not, not, not even sad. Like it was a, a very night, a nightmare for them. In many cases, they they mentioned that it was a horrible experience. I they don't want to. Well, a, a very um, uh, important experience for them, but they don't want to repeat that in their life. Right. I, I actually really like how the book gives like a sobering um, um, account of uh, economic, um, political, social and psychological incentives of um, either rearming or staying within a peace process, continuing with the DDR program. All right. Okay. So, Francie, it's always very risky to write a book about an ongoing political phenomenon. Uh, so the book came out in 2019, three years after, or two and a half years after the peace agreement was signed. I want to first applaud you for taking up this risk. Um, and but I also want to ask, since the book's English version came out pretty early, and it's been six years since the peace agreement was signed, I want to ask if some of your findings have changed. Um, is there something about the peace process with the FARC that you did not foresee? Or did everything turn out to be exactly the same as uh, you had anticipated? Um, I guess what I'm asking is, if you were to write this book again, what would you change about it? Well, I think in the future, many things will change to unexpected outcomes that I didn't foresee. Um, but it was for me very important to document what was going on at the moment. Uh, I also included in the first part a history of a previous priest processes in the first chapter. So what I did was trying to analyze the ongoing two peace processes and, and DDR programs by contrasting them with the historical cases. Um, and, and by doing so, it's not difficult to see why in Colombia we go back to violence and we go back to, to conflict. Uh, the lack of state presence and the action in rural areas, the lack of recognition of, of the peasants, uh, the, uh, the killing of the peasantry, the indigenous and communities, indigenous and Afro-Colombian communities, and, and there, are, there are still problems that we haven't we haven't solved. But answering your question, I think the political chapter can be improved a lot uh, by analyzing in the future uh, what 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 was the uh, the the destiny of the political the FARC political party the Comunes in in the longer term um, I think uh, um, many many I could improve a lot that chapter with uh, by having all the information that I have now uh, and I would like also to keep researching on, on citizenship creation uh, beyond the idea of political parties. Um, after in the aftermath of wars, um, I think that's a, that's a gap in the literature in post-conflict studies and the, and um, these DDR studies, and that has been also a topic that has been underestimated in political science. So yeah, I think I could improve my findings uh, on that. Right. So if, if you need a co-author to work on that project, I know someone. <laughs> we'll call you. We'll... <laughs> I might I might know someone uh, 
Um, so you're you're absolutely right that the mid-level commanders of the FARC or what they were called um, field commanders or middle managers of the FARC are very important uh, in the rearmament process. Some of them, a lot of them rearmed and formed uh, these um, dissident groups. Um, I actually have a paper that explains the role of mid-level commanders. But um, as you know, the government of Colombia is now negotiating with these dissident groups. Uh, there was a ceasefire that was signed with four armed groups on January 1st, uh, 2023. Um, now, these are very different groups, these four, uh, compared to the FARC. Uh, we have the AGC, the new paramilitaries. We have the ELN, and we have two FARC um, dissident groups. Now, I personally don't think it's a good idea to lump all these groups together in one piece of process, but... Um, but the government is still negotiating for a more robust ceasefire agreement. Uh, and many of uh, my sources who are at the table, they say that there will be a DDR program perhaps uh, in a few years. So what do you think this new program should look like? Um, what does the book tell us about previous DDR programs in Colombia that can be used uh, as lessons for a new program that might include all these four different groups, um, the FARC dissident groups, the ELN, and the AHSA? Well, uh, that's a very important point. In my opinion, uh, Petro is making the same mistakes as Uribe um, in terms of uh, pushing for the negotiation and the mobilization of armed groups, but completely underestimating reintegration. And I have to remind this um, uh, audience that President Petro, when he was the mayor of Bogota, actually he dismantled the local Bogota program of the mobilization I, I was talking before. So he didn't find that. It's also very paradox, um, paradoxically, this this uh, this action because he is an ex-combatant himself, right? So one was expecting him to be more supportive of all these uh, structures for reintegrating ex-combatants. And he didn't. Uh, I, I still don't know the reasons, but I think he, um, he needs to um, go back to the learned lessons of the creation and failure of all these uh, DDR programs um, to uh, understand what they did well and what was wrong. Um, we all hope all these peace processes will achieve uh, an agreement, uh, but I think that's rather difficult under the actual, the, the, the current circumstances. Uh, but the difference right now in comparison to Uribe's government is that the institutions are there. I think he's not listening at the moment, those institutions. Uh, in, in, in Also because many of the, those institutions were created by Uribe's government. That's true, but, but, that, that, but it's also important to understand that those institutions grew up and were developed independent from the president's mandate. And these institutions went beyond the control of, of Uribe's administrations. In fact, the directors of these institutions later on became part of uh, the um, opposition to, to, to Uribe. They became openly political contradictors 
to him and his and his political party, the Centro Democratico. So there are many lessons to be learned by, uh, from these programs. Um, but the main one is that institutions are worth it. Institutions are important. Yeah, we cannot go in. We cannot keep going from peace agreement from to peace agreement uh, and creating new institutions every time and uh, forgetting all the lessons from the previous one just because um, probably they were not created in the way that the president at the moment wanted to uh, wanted them to 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 be created like they, they had different uh, political reasons for be, for being created or uh, they had different um, I don't know um, uh, focuses in their um, in, in their in, in their programs, but um, we need to keep and um, strengthen these institutions um, and see them as um, contributors to all these peace processes instead of um, just forgetting them and decided not to use. Uh, for instance, all the civil servants that all the all the knowledge that the civil servants created there. So yeah, that will be my 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 main advice uh, to this government. Right. Uh, thank you for mentioning that. Of course, institutional continuities and institutional memory is very important. And uh, uh, in order not to end the podcast on on a grim note, I, I just want to say uh, I was in Colombia in January uh, 2023. Uh, as you know, we saw each other, um, and uh, I traveled to some areas uh, that had that had seen some form of calm uh, because of the ceasefire agreement in January. And uh, and every time I traveled to these areas, I thought uh, Colombia has so much potential. And if this idea in, in any form, this idea of the total peace uh, uh, is materialized, um, uh, Colombia can be um, a beacon of hope uh, and peace uh, for the region. Um, and we all hope for that day. Um, Francie, tell us what you're working on these days. Uh, what can our listeners look forward to? Now, I know about this uh, challenging and ambitious project that you have, but I want you to also tell our listeners about um, the project that you're working on now. Well, right now I'm finishing a project. Um, this year we finished a project between that was uh, jointly um, developed by the Los Andes University and the University of Birmingham. Um, and it, it it was a research on mental health in conflict areas in the Pacific Coast. And remember, the Pacific Coast uh, was one of the areas, and I mean, it's a huge area for different departments um, of provinces here in Colombia uh, that didn't find peace after the peace agreement. Uh, so well, conflict is still going on, uh, and precisely uh, Petro government is trying to Make different agreements with the uh, with the different armed groups and criminal groups and gangs uh, that operate in the, that area. So we are working with the youth, trying to understand what the problems of mental health are um, and how to create a, a, a support network for them in in these areas. So hopefully we will publish. Uh, um, an article this year, and uh, we're also very uh, working very hard uh, in order to write um, 
um, a product, a, um, a leaflet or, or a booklet that will will inform the community of our results and uh, we will work with them as co-authors um, in order to publish a, a product for the communities there and for them to, to know what to do when they find all these mental health problems in, in their uh, teenagers and children and um, young people of the community. Uh, so yeah, I'm working on that. I hope to keep uh, working in terms of uh, also uh, researching more about all these peace processes. Um, also, uh, I'm, I, I hope to uh, keep uh, researching on the creation, the create, the creation of citizenship. Um, and I think the work that you have done also in terms of understanding more mid-level commanders will contribute to this as well. Like, remember, ex-combatants could also be a, um, an important workforce and an important contributors um, for the for the peace and for the state reconstruction and community building as well. So yeah, I hope to uh, also contribute in that in the future. Great, thank you. Um, I, I, I appreciate a lot like, how you managed to marry um, your research with policy. I've seen one of the booklets you've produced uh, for community sensitization, uh, and I hope we can see more of these booklets uh, that are very important for the pedagogy of peace um, on the ground. Okay, um, this was a great conversation, Francie. I wish I could go on with my questions, but every podcast must come to an end. Uh, I want to give our listeners the chance to read the book, either in English or in Spanish. Uh, so thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you, Sally, so much for, for giving me this opportunity to talk about my research, and I hope... Um, all this contributes to achieve peace in Colombia and to improve other peace processes in the world. Thank you. The book we discussed was Demobilization and Reintegration in Colombia, Building State and Citizenship by Francie Carranza Franco, published by Rutledge in 2019. I'm Sally Sharif. Thank you for listening. <laughs>